Welcome to episode 305 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, we got an interview today. Another interview, almost back to back. What? Look at us, like being responsible and and scheduling things. I know. (laughs) We got a great interview today. Before we get into it, we want to thank our sponsor, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Yes, thank you to Abstract. Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. Today, most design teams work on multiple versions of the same file, and you end up duplicating your efforts, and as a result, you end up overwriting and losing a bunch of work. So because design teams are still spending a frustrating amount of hours searching for files and exporting them from one tool and importing them into another, consolidating feedback from a bunch of different sources, you end up never really knowing what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. So how do we solve that, Brian? Abstract to the rescue. Abstract is like GitHub, but for designers, it's your team's version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work. It brings the entire workflow into a single unified place for designers, developers, PMs, and all stakeholders to collaborate and keep your work moving forward. It's end-to-end collaboration. Everything from versioning design files and storing them to requesting reviews, collecting feedback, presenting your work, and when things are ready to get built, can hand off the spec directly to your developers. All of this is built on a platform that works both on and offline. In just the last couple of years, Abstract has acquired over 100,000 users. That includes people from companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp and thousands of others across 75 different countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers and developers and PMs, they all become more intertwined. The team at Abstract feels that a more collaborative and open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. Today, Abstract seamlessly integrates with Sketch, the design tool of choice for many of you out there. But in 2019, they're going to continue to expand their support for more tools, more file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. You can learn more at abstract.com. They have a free 30-day trial that you and your entire team can get on board right now. That's at abstract.com. Give it a try. Work smarter, not harder. Go to abstract.com and get on board. So thank you again to Abstract for making this episode possible. Thanks, Abstract. Marshall, do we have any follow-up this week? No, we don't have follow-up this week because we're doing some time traveling. Um, We're recording in the past for an episode in the future, so we don't have any follow-up. We haven't even recorded episode 304 yet. Whoa, peeling back the curtain. Yeah, this so, is yeah. movie magic, people. Movie magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, breaking the fourth wall here. Episode but, 303 uh, hasn't even been released. Mm-hmm. Episode 304 is just a twinkle in our eye. Uh-huh. And here we are recording episode 305. What? Yeah, so there's no follow-up, there's no news, because it hasn't happened yet. But, Whoa. Uh, Whoa, expect, dude. <laughs> expect a, a large volume of follow-up and news in the next episode, potentially. Yeah. Because it will be a backlog of like three weeks. All right, well, we can skip follow-up news and get straight into it. Today we're talking with Michi Kao. She's a designer at a startup called Sisu. Before that, she was a designer uh, working on the timeline of Twitter. Um, before that, she was working on all sorts of cool projects at school and, and through internships. She even ended up working on YouTube Kids at YouTube, but sadly didn't overlap with Marshall. Nope. Uh, we get to talk to Michi all about the transition from big companies to startups and so much more. And so here's our interview with Michi Kao. Let's go. Michi, welcome to Design Details. For people who aren't familiar with you, can you introduce yourself in your own words? Yeah, sure. I'm Michi Kao. I'm a designer based in San Francisco, 
and I'm currently at a startup called Sisu where I am the first and only designer and I just basically do all design related things, whatever that means. So uh-huh. yeah. whatever whatever's needed with design experience pixels, it falls on your shoulders. Basically. Sounds pretty relaxing, not hard at all. <laughs> Very relaxing. Uh, What is Sisu in layman's terms? (laughs) (laughs) So Sisu, the startup or the company, is uh, we're working on a data analytics tool that's meant to kind of help people and businesses process their data and kind of tell them why the business metrics that they care about are changing. And so what we can do is take the data that companies are collecting and analyze it in at a speed and a scale that it's really hard to do right now. Um, currently, that's tackled by you know teams of data analysts or data scientists, and so we could do that for companies and yeah, give them insights in seconds. Very cool. What would be an example of like an insight that only Sisu could? provide? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we know people care about is an engagement metric, like daily active users. And so uh, you could tell us that you want to increase or you want to optimize for this metric that you care about and connect Sisu to your data source or whatever data set that you have. And we'll you know, analyze it and tell you daily active users is increasing as a result of this factor and this factor. So app version, when app version is this, or when location is California, or when users are in the range of like ages nine to 16, something like that. And so we can essentially look at your data and see what factors are affecting this particular metric that you told us that you cared about. Wow. This sounds like mystical... Hogwarts magic. Hogwarts magic. (laughs) It's powerful for sure. Yeah, powerful magic. Yes. That's really cool. And so before this, what were you doing? Prior to this, I was at Twitter for about three and a half years. Um, I worked on essentially the, the home timeline there. And that involved a lot of stuff like, you know, understanding how people navigate through the timeline, what content is best, you know, most relevant to them. And also kind of looking at tweet anatomy, like, you know, where do all these the actions go and the names and all that stuff. And so that was something that I started out with uh, when I like one of the first projects I worked on. And so, yeah, it's a it's pretty meaty problem. Yeah, totally. Can you give me a hot take on the new twitter.com desktop website? Mm, Hot (laughs) take. No, I I think it's really good. I love the side nav on the left. It's clear, you know, easily accessible. And they made uh, lists like more prominent. And um, actually, that's a really good thing because it's, you know, Uh, A lot of people want to follow things on Twitter that they care about and they have different topics and this, you know, makes it easier to find because, you know, the timeline can be pretty overwhelming and we've seen that in research uh, many times. Yeah, lists always felt uh, a little bit buried in here. It's nice to see them. And same with bookmarks being pulled out to the top is like parts of the core experience. Oh, yeah. Bookmark is so helpful. Yeah. I do it all the time. Me too. I didn't realize how much stuff I had bookmarked until it came into the 
primary nav and I'm like, oh yeah, that thing exists that I can go and browse. And it was actually pretty yes. useful. So, well, that's cool. And so Michi, you and I have met and hung out before. And one of the things that I find super interesting about your experiences is basically your transition from Twitter to Sisu, going from this giant social consumer application literally to the opposite thing that I can possibly <laughs> think of is like first designer at a startup, B2B data analytics and data measurement, like just totally opposite world. So I want to know the whole story of how that transition happened. And then we can talk about what it's been like and what the differences are. Uh, so yeah, maybe start like, how did this transition even begin uh, moving from Twitter to Sisu? Yeah, so it is very true that I definitely swung from like one side of the spectrum to the other. And yes. I mean, it's only hitting me now. Like at the time, I really didn't realize that. But yeah, so I around the time that like around three years ish at Twitter, um, you know, I started to kind of get curious about what was next. I've always kind of had this like itch to try and start something early or like be at a startup. Mm -hmm. It's just like an experience, like it stems from my experience in grad school, having like worked with um, a startup while I was in grad school. And so I really wanted to see what that was like, um, what it looks like to start a company from scratch. And I just thought a lot about like how it was gonna grow next and what was the next thing I was going to do after Twitter. And ultimately it kind of came down to me wanting to optimize for growth and exposure to different work environments or spaces, um, especially given that I'm fairly early in my career. And so I kind of looked at like, you know, if I stay at Twitter for another year, like how much more am I going to grow? And if I were to try a completely new space, work with new people, how much am I going to grow there? And, you know, it just became clear that it was like time for me to push myself um, to do things that were uncomfortable. And serendipitously, I got introduced to Peter around that time. And Peter's the founder. Yes. Yeah. Peter is the founder and CEO of Sisu. And it all just kind of clicked in that, you know, it was early that enough that I could like make an impact on the culture and the product and see it grow and scale. And it was something that was interesting. Like the technology was interesting. Peter has like a deep expertise in this field. And I worked a lot at Twitter with um, the engineers because they were working on ranking and algorithms of the timeline. And I felt like it complemented um, my experience and skill set and strength. And so, yeah, it just all kind of came into place. In the end, it was like chose something that would push me to grow and expose me to new things and um, let me just like build something. I really wanted to build something from scratch. So was it scary when you <laughs> thought about leaving? I, I mean, I would assume that at that point, Twitter felt comfortable, like you knew your way around collaboration. You had these relationships with engineers. Was it scary to consider giving that up versus, you know, maybe alternatives would be switching teams or trying to do like a PM role or like there's other things that you could have done. Right. But you obviously felt called to this other dramatically different thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was scary in that like I didn't really know there was little to go on, right? Like it's Peter and or at the time it was just Peter and 
he had this vision and product and really like the team wasn't there. But the thing was I really, like I didn't want to be comfortable. I didn't want to coast. I wanted to do something that scared me and to feel like I was being challenged. And so looking back at like experiences that I've had, like the things that have felt really meaningful and fulfilling to me were things that where I like did things that I didn't think I could do and that I was like deeply challenged and scared about. And so I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And, and when you think like, you know, I also weighed the risks and I calculated it, right? So I had high, like I have a high risk tolerance at this point in my life. I don't have to uh, worry about supporting other people. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not like attached to, you know, anyone else. And um, I could be focused on myself and I had saved up enough where it's like, okay, if this fails, like it's not going to like kill me. And so um, I thought it was just like a good time to do it. And I just made the jump. That makes sense. When you started talking to Peter and realized, okay, there's this one startup opportunity, did you also consider finding other startups to interview at? So before I met Peter, I had actually kind of started to, you know, talk to other startups. And so I think Peter's probably, or Sisu's the fourth startup that I had talked to. Um, By that time, I had like talked to three others and they all were, you know, fairly interesting and good, but for whatever reason, there are things that just didn't click. Like maybe the founder, you know, felt a bit like it just didn't click with him. There was something off about him or, you know, the space wasn't as interesting to me. And so by the time I got introduced to Peter, I had already kind of dabbled in the space of the startup space and like seeing what was out there. And it made it easier or made it more clear to me that this particular startup had a lot of the things or the criteria that I cared about, like potential and the founder is a good person and he has like, you know, expertise and all that stuff. And so by that time, it was pretty easy to tell. I see. Do you have advice for other people that might be interested in also seeking out startups? Like how did you find those initial four You mentioned that meeting Peter was serendipitous, but were there things that you did that put you in a position to meet him that other people could maybe replicate or try and, you know, put themselves in a similar situation? Yeah. So what I realize is a lot of the opportunities that I get or, you know, no matter whether it's like a career or anything else, a lot of it ends up coming to me or like any person organically, like through your network. And so when it's something this early, like for Sisu, you know, it was, I think I might've been maybe like the first or second person who uh, had accepted the offer by that time. And so like, it was very early and it's really hard. Like you're not going to find this on angel list. <laughs> right, really? Yeah. I mean, like it, it's more, you have to c- catch it through like word of mouth or like somebody introduced you to someone else. And so I think for someone who's looking for this early of a position, you know, connecting with people in the space, whether they're product managers, like people you worked with in the past in companies, or even just like actually tweeting it out and like putting signals out there to um, the design community that you're interested in this is probably your best bet. I don't think that this would come like, I don't think you'll find this on a job listing. Or even if, you know, it is, it's it's really hard to find one where, you know, you have uh, the right mixer or something. And so 
having your network help you is um, very helpful. And sure, so, sure. Or like, you know, putting signals out there if your your network, you know, isn't as connected to the people that you need to seek out. Totally. So you put yourself out there and managed to to find this one company that was a good fit and they extended you an offer. And so what happened when you joined and you land and it's just you and Peter and I, I'm picturing like a garage type situation <laughs> where it's like, oh. so uh, what do we do now, huh? <laughs> well, so let's see. By the time that I... I started like my first day at the company. It had been maybe a month or so already, like between the time I accepted the offer and like actually showed up because there was a bit of transition period. And so by that time, I think I was probably the fourth or fifth person there. Oh, okay, that helps. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we were in a WeWork okay. in Soma. And um, it was definitely not a garage. It was like really cute, actually. Like we were all, we had like little desks in this like one room and uh we you know didn't have a kitchen or anything and so i started a little snack drawer and like (laughs) we had like other startups near us that were also working and so that's what the vibe was like and it it was actually look back on it i was like yeah it's super fun and memorable and um you know i guess it's not like the stereotypical like startup environment it actually reminds me a lot like my grad school studio in a way (laughs) So, yeah. And so what was the first few weeks like getting ramped up in this new environment? A lot of it was me like trying to soak in and absorb all this like technical knowledge. I remember I was the f- or I was the first uh, non-technical person to join. And so there were like other engineers and Peter and they're all already like well-versed in like all these technical database stuff. And so a lot of it was like me trying to soak that up and just learn what this tool was, what the space was about. And so I remember like trying to figure out like what uh, Kubernetes was or like (laughs) Docker and all these like terms. I kind of like, if you think about it, it's like Charlie Brown and you hear like, you know, you see the parents kind of like talking, but you never really understand what they're saying. Like it's always abstracted. (laughs) It's kind of like that. Like you hear what they're saying, but like you don't fully process it. And, you know, to this day, like there are a lot of technical things that still are tough for me to understand, but it's getting better. And yeah, the whole team has like from the very beginning been very helpful and, you know, really open to sharing their knowledge with me and like kind of walking me through learning all that stuff. And so, yeah, that's what it, that's what I remember it to be. And it it was, (laughs) it was overwhelming. It was fun. Um, just lots of like energy and like excitement to kind of just like do this thing. Yeah, yeah. How did your work life balance change between jobs? Mm. Was there a massive shift or? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there was like a huge like shift in that it's like, oh, you know, like now you're you're working like on the clock 24 seven or whatever. I think the biggest thing is like, the mindset change it's like at twitter there were other designers there and so Mm -hmm. i could you know take a day off or a weekend off and just like shut down and never like think about you know design and just be like okay you know somebody is going to handle it right but when you are the only designer at this startup or even just in a startup in general um there's just like more accountability and it's harder to just like step away and like cut it off 
Yeah. It's just more like of a lifestyle in many ways. It's you, you have to, you kind of live and breathe it in a way that you you don't necessarily need to do in a bigger company. Yeah, that, that's what I was wondering about. Cause it's like, yeah, can can you actually disconnect as easily as you can when you're in a larger company? Sounds like not. Yeah, I would I would imagine that I would do a very similar thing of like go home and still be thinking about it because no one else is going to be. Yeah, and I actually, I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing no, because, no. well, so what I love is like the. I feel like I have this like strong impact on the product and at Twitter it's like it was just easier to turn off and in many ways I think I wanted something that was like that I could say that I had a true like that was mine mm-hmm. I guess and so um, I definitely feel that in the startup more but yeah I would I mean yes with startups like it is a bit harder to turn off so you mentioned that it's not a bad thing but do you find it to be a more stressful lifestyle or have you found it a, a way to, to balance that? Like, yeah, I'm always thinking about it, but I'm not thinking about it in a way that's detrimental to my health or well-being. H- have you found that balance? Yeah. Well, I think it's like a work in progress. It definitely is more stressful. The things that I think have really helped me is doing like uh, creative things that are just like away from the screen. And so like dancing or watercolor, that's really like helped me like kind of slow down and just like decompress and just spending time with like people that I care about. And, you know, in general, that helps put perspective or adds perspective to a lot of the things that, you know, like maybe one day I'm like freaking out about something. And then, you know, you realize in the grand scheme of things, there are also other things that matter too. (laughs) Yeah. And so that balances like things out for me. One thing that I found when we started spectrum i guess a little over two years now was there is a like startup designer culture that i felt like Mm -hmm. was more welcoming of me as a person when i too was in a startup you know definitely more so than when i was at facebook have you found a community shift in the types of people that you're surrounded by or like the way designers interact with you or street cred yeah (laughs) yeah so I've been really pleasantly surprised with the startup community, like the design startup community. It's it's just so interesting because everybody has a different role. Like no matter who you talk to, like their title might still be the same or whatever, but like they're doing a variety of things. And uh, that's been really cool. And I think people are just really open and forthcoming with advice and knowledge and just really supportive. And I think it's because, you know, like it's, it's not like we all want that team kind of feeling or that camaraderie. And you don't get that like easily when you're in a startup as you would in like a bigger company. It just comes built in, right? If you have a design team. And so people are just uh, more proactive about seeking that out. And when we find each other, we're all, you know, super supportive and not in any way like judgmental or competitive and, yeah, I've been really pleasantly surprised by it. And I'm just so impressed, actually. Like, it's not easy being, like, uh, the only designer. And when I see other people doing it, I have so much respect for them. And and I've been really, like, happy about that. One thing that I found with, you know, related to Spectrum was in the that circle of people who are in two, three, four person companies, when you would talk with them and you'd ask, you know, how's it going? How's work? How's, how's startup life? 
people actually started opening up a little bit more and it wasn't just, ah, oh, things are great. You know, it's fun. We're, we're having a blast. It was actually more responses of it's really hard right now. Like this thing sucks. We're struggling with this. Uh, we biffed a launch. We didn't get a sale. We missed a hire. Like I felt as though people were a little bit more forthcoming once I'd kind of entered that circle a little bit. Have you found that as well? Yeah, I definitely think like with the group of like designers that I've like connected to, there definitely is a lot of conversation about like, oh, this is so hard right now. And, you know, I don't know how to do this. But I mean, like that is actually like what bonds us. Well, you started you started a club for this. Do I have this correct? <laughs> yes. So tell me about this. <laughs> yes, it's called Day One Design Club and kind of started from a tweet about like me wanting to find a group of designers who are in the same situation as I am and kind of led to a bunch of people, you know, showing interest and it's now a Slack group. And every now and then we'll have dinners together for the people in San Francisco. And actually the most recent thing we did was this lightning talk where we all got together and we talked about, you know, one thing that was really hard for us that we learned while we were doing the startup. And um, one thing that we were really proud of and who we were. And so, like you said, bonding over those like hard moments and those things that you're proud of, it's just like a lot more real and raw because there really is nothing. I mean, like in a big company, there's a lot that can be talked about or that can, you know, in many ways, there's a lot there, right? Like you've got the comfort of like the, and the prestige of like a big name. Yeah, totally. You aren't worried about whether like this company is going to make it or not. And it's just a lot more comfortable and when you're in a startup, like you're in survival mode, trying to like find product market fit. And so that just, you know, takes all these other things that are not necessarily like, uh, that are just like peripheral and it really brings, you know, it, it's just more raw and like real. And you see that in like when, what people talk about or like the conversations that they have. So on that note, I'm curious about the actual work itself that you're doing now. So you're still the only designer and mm -hmm. uh, you're working with a bunch of engineers. What are some of the, the big, big problems you're working on right now? Yeah. One of the things is understanding, like, when we have the insights that we give to people, like, what is it that they want to do with it and, like, making it actionable. And that's pretty important because, like, the insight that they get is only as effective as, like, you know, whether someone else will take it and do something with it. And so uh, we've looked, like, we've started to, we've dug into like what people's workflows are whenever like in a company when some like a data analyst finds this interesting insight like what is it that they do with it and us trying to map um, our workflow to that and so making these facts as we call them that we find in your data like more easily shareable and like allowing people to add context to these facts because you know sometimes there's information about these facts that are not available in the data and um, allowing them to kind of curate or like gather all these facts and like present them and tell a story with it and share it to their teams. Um, that's something that's like very interesting and like grounded in, you know, uh, the workflows that people are doing now that we see in companies. And so that's one thing that we're doing. It also sounds like there's a user research process involved there. Yeah, so there is. We talk a lot to our customers. Charles is 
our product guy, go-to-market guy, and he spends a lot of time talking to customers and kind of like understanding like how they're using the tool and like what they want to get out of it. And so I, you know, get a lot of insights from him and just like in general, like us talking to customers, we hear, you know, what it is that they want and that all gets translated to the product that we're building. And even before like Charles was here, uh, I ran uh, like my own little research kind of sessions with people and trying to like understand what their pain points are. And so, yeah, you do like, yeah, we do have research built into the process a lot. And like we focus a lot on just making sure that the customer voice and the pain points like shine through in in the entire process of building. Yeah, yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah. I guess what I maybe the the underlying question here is, you know, when you were at Twitter thinking about oh, I'm, I need I'm looking for ways to grow. I'm looking for ways to stretch myself, to scare myself. Have you gotten that so far? Like, are you <laughs> are you finding that those things are happening in this new environment or is the process more or less the same? Oh, I'm absolutely more challenged and, you know, find myself in situations where I'm like, oh, wow, like I... I need to like figure this out or I, I, you know, I don't know what to do here. And certainly that happens a lot more. And yeah, it, it, (laughs) it definitely, I definitely come into, like, I run into a lot of more of the things that I feel like I'm not strong at. And, you know, whereas in your, at Twitter, you have this um, team like of designers that are like good at different skill sets. And whereas here I, need to just do whatever the job, you know, whatever needs to be done. And so they can be things that I'm not great at, but I still do it because that just needs to happen in order to get the job done. And so um, I certainly run into those things a lot more. And what I'm learning is, you know, lean into your strengths when you, and actually in a startup, like you, you know, ask whoever, like, it doesn't matter what your discipline is. If somebody is really good at like copy and like wordsmithing, like, yeah, let's include him in on all the process. It really just boils down to like, what skill set can you do? And like, let's leverage the entire team to, to do this together, regardless of whether you're an engineer or a designer or a marketing person, like, yeah. Uh, is there anything in particular that you're struggling the most with right now? What's the hardest <laughs> yeah. part of your the life hardest right now? Heart. So there's a few things. Currently, it's just, you know, getting stuff, you know, designed. And like, there's a lot of engineers compared to just one of me. And so um, <laughs> being able to, you know, work at the pace for them to build and, Personally, like I'm coming up against a lot of like visual design stuff. Like, I don't think that that's my strongest suit. And, you know, for a while I was just like, man, I like, I don't have a strong stance on like the color scheme and all these things. And it just was like more apparent to me than it was at Twitter. How are you going about learning about visual design? This is actually a question that a lot of people message us about, like Mm -hmm. in a very similar situation. How do I... (laughs) <laughs> How do I learn or start or or get more proficient at the visual side of things? Well, as with everything, like you just have to do it and like practice it, right? <laughs> and just kind of not freak yourself out. Like you can't tell yourself that you suck because otherwise that gets in the way of just like doing things and moving forward. 
But um, tactically, like what I've done is, you know, when I have questions about like, hey, like how do I choose a color scheme? I'll reach out to like my startup designer network and be like, hey, how did you guys do it? And one of the things that we've learned is just like, look at other design systems that other companies have built and see how they've laid things out and how they're kind of going about these visual design things. And whenever I have a question about anything in particular, like I Google it and I see like what people write and I look at a lot of apps and try to like study, you know, how they did that. And so it's just about kind of like finding the information and like knowing how to get it and not having to know all of it, but, you know, just doing just enough to get you to that next step. And then once you like get that done, I'm sure like the next time you'll be confronted with like another visual design thing and then you figure that out and then it's just like steps and steps and then over time you kind of build this like working knowledge but yeah I love that yeah yeah but for sure like the answer is not to shy away in a way it's just like the answer is to do it and shut down that voice in your head that's like you suck at this and um, be okay with you know being just good enough I love the idea of just-in-time learning where, I don't know, I, I there's so many books out there on like high-level things or abstract things or, I don't know, I, I find myself reading books about management and I don't manage people and I'm like, this isn't really relevant. Like it, It's interesting <laughs> but irrelevant until I would have to implement any of it, at which point it will have been so long since I've read this that I might as well just reread it. So I've started <laughs> to try and police myself on that a little bit. It's like, if there's something I don't know, I'll, I'll learn about it. But otherwise, I want to be reading about things that are more relevant to the day-to-day if I'm going to be studying like craft and, and technique and things like that. Yeah. And, and it's just like sometimes the nuance and the trade-offs you have to make, like that doesn't really shine through in like books. What books can do is kind of tell you the fundamentals or like the guidelines or the rules, but like knowing how to break them or like knowing when to not, you know, like, uh, do something else is, is the important thing or the, the, the hard thing, right? Like that's practical experience. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's a lot of, you you know, the comic, how to draw an owl and the first frame is, you know, like rough ovals. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then the second frame is this beautiful owl. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, it's really hard to get there. And you know, the way you just do it is just to do it enough times. Yeah. I think the, Putting in the number of iterations makes sense, but is there a pressure on you at the early stage to get that right the first time? Or is there, have you managed to find a culture where it's like, yeah, I'm working on this. The first iteration might not be perfect. Await further (laughs) iterations. Oh yeah. So uh, there definitely is like no pressure to like, you know, get it right the first time. If anything (laughs) in the startup, it's like, it's very clear, like, you know, we have to just move so quickly and like iterate all the time. And so things change so fast. Like you get new information every week from a customer and like trying to integrate that into, you know, the work into the product. Um, you just realize like the product shifts like a lot more quickly than say like Twitter would. And so, there's no need to be like precious mm, about mm-hmm. that work because, you know, after a month or two, it's, it's like, okay, actually, you know, we learned something new, need to change it. And so the, the focus on, on like the startup is really, it's like, let's just bias towards action, like try and 
do the most thoughtful or, you know, make a good decision based on the information that we have, um, knowing that we can be wrong. And a lot of times we can be wrong and like, you know, uh, adapting or like course correcting afterwards. I think the most important thing is like not necessarily getting it right the first time, but correcting yourself or like knowing to adapt or like to learn continuously is the way to go. Totally agreed. Yeah, I think that's smart. I like just biasing towards action in general seems like a winning move, especially at an early stage. It's like you just don't have the time to overthink everything or, or second guess yourself with every pixel, right? Yeah, and even and like even if you have the most perfect visual design, it's like if your product is not solving the problem or it's just like it's not solving the need, then it's not going to do anything, right? Like the thing that's most important is to build a product that's like that people love, find usefulness in, and like that's the thing that matters in the end. It doesn't even matter like how pretty it looks. Pretty isn't perfect. Yep. I love it. Knowing what you know now, would you advise younger designers to do what you did and start out at a large company and then work your way back towards a startup? Or would you advise a younger designer to do the opposite and start up to a big company or or just stay at startups? Hmm. I feel a bit conflicted here because in my experience, like what I did was uh, I went to a big company to kind of like learn everything and get exposure to a bunch of things. And then from there, I went to Sisu. So it was kind of like, you know, learn all the rules and then afterwards learn to break them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? it, it's like in drawing class. They make you draw circles, like boring circles for a long time. And then, then you become like Picasso. But actually, like I, a lot of the people at Sisu, like they're uh, new grads and they're so full of energy and like they're amazing. And so I think it really depends on like what you're looking for. If you're okay with ambiguity and you have a lot of energy and you're excited, I think it's like wonderful as a new grad to go but I, I guess I'll say like, I feel like Twitter as an experience has really like prepared me for Sisu. And so I would say like, you know, have that experience if you'd like, and then you can move into a startup. And I think you're better positioned to like, um, know how to handle a lot of these situations if you care, like, especially if like, if you want to see like work with a whole bunch of people, like be able to try different spaces, then I think the big company is for you. And and then you can dive in. So if I had to choose, I would bias towards like what I did because I can see how much Twitter has really helped me. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, it just really depends as with all things. It's like both things work. Yeah, it always depends. I just want you to alienate half of the audience, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my feeling on this is that you're going to learn good habits and bad habits either way you go, right? Like everyone says, yeah, if you go to work sure. at a big company, you learn bad habits. Like, well, the same thing is true at a startup. Like if you, if your first job is the first designer at a tiny company, you're going to pick up some ridiculously bad habits around, you know, <laughs> like validating ideas, maybe even visuals or user research. Like there's all these habits that might not be ideal in that environment. And then conversely, you know, at a large corporation, you might pick up bad habits around politicking and the time to ship. Exactly. Yeah. It's much harder to ship a volume of work I've found in my experience. I don't know. What what do you 
agree with that, Marshall. That it's harder to ship something. It takes longer to ship something at a big company than it does at a small company. Which might set the wrong kinds of expectations for somebody, uh, a younger designer, to start in that environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just, they they feel so different. Like, I feel like I've had to unlearn things, Mm -hmm. you know, that would normally be very successful or, you know, well encouraged or encouraged in a startup uh, in a big company and you know they just won't work in a startup what's it do you have an example of something that you've had to unlearn yeah so with you know at twitter there was a lot of focus on um consistency and like you know uh, spending lots of time thinking about the system and how like one design can like impact a lot of the different things and building stakeholder support and all that stuff. And I think that that is still useful in a startup. It's just, it matters less. Like it, in in a way it's like, it doesn't, you don't need to worry about consistency, not so much. Like it's important to make a interface like intuitive and easy for people to understand, but you don't have to do something like for the sake of consistency. And there is like no necessarily like strong adherence that you have to have to a design system. Like I built out like my own little design system when I joined Sisu and I was like, yeah, look at this. Like I did this and <laughs> look what but, I can do. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, actually, like it's helpful for me to act. It's helpful in the way that like it sped up my working process and it prepared our team to build things more efficiently and not do like a lot of custom work. But in and of itself, it's not like, you know, oh, good God, like, you know, that is going to be what saves or like what gets Sisu to be successful. Right. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like you can have a, you cannot have a design system and you can still have an amazing product. Totally agree. Love it. And I'm very excited to see how Sisu goes and the way you grow and the team grows seems very challenging and I'm excited for you. Thanks. Me too. So Michi, we, we like to end each episode by sharing a cool thing that we found. So we have all prepared and uh, (laughs) this time Marshall or I will go first and we'll break the ice, so to speak, on on cool finds this week. Okay. Marshall, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll go first. All right. So this week I'm going to share a a pair of music videos. And ultimately, you know, really what I'm sharing with you is is the gift of emotion, Brian. <laughs> this is this is what I'm gifting with you with. So so it's a it's a, a pair of music videos from an artist named Louis Capaldi. He wrote a song that you've probably heard on the radio. It's called uh, "Someone You Loved." the The chorus ends with "I was getting kind of used to being someone you loved." You've probably heard this song, anyways. So, uh, you know, I, I uh, saw this music video get recommended to me on YouTube, and I looked at the thumbnail, and it's a it's a sad song. And I looked at the thumbnail, and I was like, that's probably going to be a sad video. I don't know if I'm down for that right now. So I never watched it. And then I was listening to, like, a Today's Hits playlist on Spotify, and there was a, a vertical video associated with this song. But it was something completely different from the music video that I had seen. It was this guy in a hotel bathroom with a bunch of crazy sunglasses on, lip syncing the song. 
And I was like, what the fuck is this? And it turns out that's Louis Capaldi. He's a crazy guy. Very funny. Has a YouTube channel and everything. And he's, he's a very funny dude. And he made this like uh, this version of the, of the music video where he's just in a hotel room trying on stupid sunglasses, which I guess is kind of his thing, and making fun of his song. But it's actually a really heartfelt song. So that's kind of what got me into it. I was like, oh, this guy's funny. He doesn't take himself too seriously. This is cool. And then, you know, I, I had the, the video recommended to me again, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll click on this now. And I proceeded to watch that video, and it tore me asunder. I was, I was like a, a bawling wreck by the end of it. So I dare you to watch these two music videos and not laugh and not cry. It's yeah. an emotional roller coaster, and it's amazing. Brian, you have, you've seen both of these videos. Well, we, we watched them together live. Yeah. And did you laugh and cry? Uh, yeah, actually. I'm yes. not afraid to say we cried together <laughs> okay. over, yeah. over the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I even tweeted, I tweeted, I'm not crying, you're crying. But <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. actually oh, crying. I think I saw that. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. my fault. I did that. <laughs> yeah, Marshall did this to me. So depending on how many people actually go and watch that video and cry, just think about your impact here, Marshall, and how many tears will be spilt because of your, your advice. They're good tears. They're like, it's it's wholesome tears. Yeah, yeah. Still. It's a great, mm. both videos are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. The crying one is great, but. It's wholesome laughter and wholesome tears, but yeah. Okay, I have to watch that. Enjoy the gift of emotion, listener. <laughs> there you go. All right, Michi, do you want to go next or do you want me to go next? Beat that. Can you beat emotion, uh, Michi? <laughs> I don't know. I, well, no, I can beat it, I think. Oh, wow. Good. Challenge no, this accepted. Is, this, that's, that's the right answer. I'm not going to give the gift of emotion. I'm going to give the gift of mm, creativity. Okay. Okay. All so right. Right. one thing that I did recently was punch needling. Okay, so it sounds a little bit violent, but it's not. It's like yeah. anything but. <laughs> but um, basically, it's like the new coloring for adults. You basically are, it's like sewing, but with yarn. But basically, you have this like fabric, and then you just like sew, and you like draw on it, and you basically like color it in with yarn with this needle. And they call it punch because I think you have to like punch through the fabric pretty hard to get the, the yarn through. And so I took a workshop with, um, you know, this pretty famous like punch needle person and it was so much fun. I like made everything pink and like bright and colorful and it was just like coloring. Oh, wait, you've tweeted. You've tweeted some stuff that you've made. I'm looking on your Twitter right now. Yeah. Yeah. That was like a really good weekend. And I'm actually, I have in a separate tab open when I Googled punch needle, that book that's on your table is the first result that came up. So I'm simultaneously yes. on that listing while looking at what you've made from it. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Th th this is kind of like cross stitch. But with yarn. Yeah. But with yarn and like colorful yarn. Cr the cross stitch that I'm familiar with is a little bit more like paint by numbers where like you work off of a sheet that somebody already figured out what it should look like. This is like you define your own thing, you draw it in with pencil, and then fill in the, the shapes with color? Yeah, well, to be fair, the, the one that I did was like, I was working off of a template because it was oh, my I'm first so time. I'm so disappointed. I cannot believe you. <laughs> I thought you said you were going to teach us creativity. Well, that is creativity. <laughs> so you can choose all these colors, and you don't have to like A-B test it and stuff. It's like, I'm just going to use pink because I want it to be pink. Well, so here's what I'm I'm confused by is in your Twitter photo, you are doing this on sort of a wooden box covered by canvas, it looks like. There's like a frame to it. But on the on the Amazon listing, I can see snapshots of this book and people are punch needling pillows, 
purses, stools, like the 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 cushion on a stool. So it sounds like you could build some you interesting needle anything. Yeah. Yeah, you could do a lot punch of things. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. We just like had it on a frame because that was the canvas that was given to us at the <laughs> workshop. But yeah, yeah. you know, after that, you could do whatever you want. You could put punch needle anything. So what are you gonna make next? I think that I want to make the pillow. I'm kind of like looking for a new pillow, and this seems like you know why not just make my own? So it's really cool. Like uh, it's so tactile. It'd be perfect for a pillow. I wanna I wanna run my hand across it. You know, all the different textures. And it's it's just like so imperfect. It's like. The first time I did it, I was like, oh man, this is like not even, it's not equal. And you just get so used to pixels, but this one, <laughs> it's like, it looks prettier because it's, it's not chunky. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Is this eight point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The eight point punch needle <laughs> grid. <laughs> what, what design are you going to put on the pillow? I think it's going to be something geometric because I want to play with the texture of the little, of the yarn and the coloring. Yeah. It looks like you can do layers here, like the... I'm just looking at the circles one from your Twitter and the, the, the yellow circle has a raised green center and you know yes. what I mean? Yeah. Is that intentional or is that just a, a byproduct of doing multiple colors on top of each other? How does that work? Oh, that's intentional. You're basically like just flipping the other side. Well, so like there's two sides to the, the fabric, right? And so when you go from like when you're wherever you start, it kind of like determines whether it's like a very thick or tufted type of like um, texture or if it's like more clean and so it's just, you could just like flip it on the other side and start from there and you'd get that texture ah. it's super simple and it's mm. like so easy to pick up like i picked it up in a few minutes like after she told us what to do and we just like ran with it so that's awesome cool thing cool thing yeah cool thing indeed brian what's yours no, I haven't gone yet. I was going to say we're going to get quite a diversity of things here. So we've got music videos, punch needling. My thing is a podcast this week. So in the past, I have recommended a YouTube channel by the name of Patrick H. Willems, who is a person who makes film essays. And what I did not know was that Patrick H. Willems and his sidekicks, his collaborators, also had a podcast and what they had in the past was a podcast about actor Josh Hartnett, who I don't know anything about Josh Hartnett. Yeah, lucky number 11. He was like a heartthrob in the early 2000s. Okay, that's the guy. Yeah. Okay. I never thought he was too much of a heartthrob, but oh, I'm sure people did. Fucking shade. All right. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him you said so. Yeah. Geez. <laughs> so they had this whole podcast about Josh Hartnett. And what they did was they just went through his entire filmography and recorded a podcast episode about each of his movies. And it has a comedy bent, but also just because of Patrick Willem's background in writing film essays and making these YouTube videos, breaking down films, they bring a lot of industry context and knowledge to the podcast. So anyways, that's not here what I'm <laughs> ready to talk about. Wait, that wasn't even your cool thing? That wasn't the cool thing. That was all background, foundational uh, stuff. Oh, Bait okay. And switch, all right. So they, they stopped the podcast in November of 2018. So it's been seven months. And they rebooted it on June 17th, 2019. And the new name of the show is called Can't Get Enough of Keanu, the Keanu Reeves <gasps> fan podcast. <laughs> wow. Ooh. And how long do you think this will go for? however many films Keanu has made. Oh, so perfect. So the way they're doing it is they're starting with the John Wick series. So they've done John Wick 1 and John Wick Chapter 2, and they will do an episode on John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. 
And then they're going to go back to the very beginning of Keanu's career, and there will be an episode for every movie that he's been in. Wow. And they, you know, just, it's a comedy show, but they also bring in the context. They go on tangents. It is entertaining, and you learn a little bit. I, I feel drawn into that culture when I listen to them talk about, like, ah, oh, you know, the directors and the writers and the producers and, like, the way movies get made and the way to think about the movies getting made. And, and then drawing the through line over time of, of an actor as prolific as Keanu Drawing a through line through his career sounds like a fun journey to go on. So that's my cool thing this week. Nice. That is pretty cool. Is is Bill and Ted the first movie? Like his first movie? I'm not sure, but that's why I watched. So I watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure last night because I was doing some home, you know, prepping. Like, yeah, I gotta do your research. <laughs> yeah. So I think they're going to do that one next, but I'm actually not sure if that's his first movie. Well, his next movie, I think, is Bogus Adventure. Or did he do anything between there? Point Break is just after that, too. Have you seen Point Break, Brian? No, I have not seen that Point Break. Michi, have you seen Point Break? No, I'm trying to think about like what movie I actually watched Keanu in. Like, even The Matrix, I'm not quite sure I remember it, but I did watch him in Always Be My Maybe. He was pretty great. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that. That's the show on Netflix that recently came out. Oh, wow. It is oh, 2019. Is the wow. Yeah. They're on a date. Yeah. yeah. And he, they go back to his place and he's crazy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah, the that one. Yeah. Oh, I want to watch this now. Okay, great. Yeah. It's pretty funny. That show, that show gave me hives. <laughs> that show was like so hard to watch, but good. Marshall struggles with cringe-inducing television mm-hmm. shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I put my hoodie up over my head, and I, I try to become invisible, and <laughs> it doesn't always work. Yeah. All right, well, gang. cool things, y'all. Cool things all around. I, I feel like yeah. we've been enriched with awesome, awesome cool things. Yeah. With emotions, creativity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And podcasts. So, Michi, thank you for taking the time to come chat with us. Yeah, thanks, Michi. Thank you for having me. Best of luck with Sisu. Thank you. Give our best wishes to the team. Yes. Uh, Say hi to Peter for me. I will. And uh, (laughs) yeah, good luck. Yes, thank you. That was it. That's episode 305 featuring Michi Kao. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you once again to Michi for taking the time to catch up with us. Let us know what you thought on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM tweet at us hit us with more questions we are gearing up for another good listener question episode hopefully in the future at some point so send us dms tweet at us let us know what you thought yeah and if you uh, if you have a name that us midwestern boys might not be able to pronounce if you put like a, a phonetic spelling of your name so we don't butcher it like that would be better otherwise like you can <laughs> that just, would be uh, great so we don't keep making fools of ourselves yeah or maybe you enjoy how how uh, terribly we butcher your name and stumble through trying to pronounce it so um if that's fun for you then just leave it off and, and we'll continue to, <laughs> to fumble through these things yeah so thank you again for listening and thank you again to abstract for making this episode possible abstract is the design workflow management system of choice for designers and developers and teams that help them to seamlessly manage version and collaborate on design you can learn more at abstract.com they have a 30-day free trial for you and your team that's at abstract.com get signed up If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. We've got lots of shows for designers and developers just like you. Also produced by Sarah and Drew, our wonderful editors and producers. They make all the shows on the Spec Network possible, including 
Layout FM by our good friends Rafa and Kevin, another design podcast that will help tide over your podcast listening needs week to week. So go check that out at spec.fm. And of course, if you are enjoying the show, leave us an iTunes review. We appreciate those. It tells Apple that you are enjoying the show and helps them know that they should recommend us to other designers like you. And uh, if you leave us a review, we'll be sure to read that in the future episode. Indeed. So that's it. We'll see you next week with some new content and probably a lot of follow-up. <laughs> Bye. And welcome to the show, Michi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's Hi, see that perfect. one more time. Perfect. <laughs> All right. We have our stinger. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and welcome to Design Details. Michi, good to have you here. Hey, nice to have you. Sure. Well, <laughs> nice to be here, actually. Sorry. All right, that's stinger number two. This is not my yeah. podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm you sorry. enjoy the movie, too. You, you, you have a, <laughs> happy birthday to you, too. Oh, crap. Okay. <laughs>